You're listening to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors at Mountain Park. This is actually the first uh, time in this year, in 2023, that I have been preaching. We have an amazing team of pastors here, and um, they've all been uh, leading the way this year in preaching. This one was my first contribution to our series. This is part four of our Intentional Life series. I'm not gonna say anything more now, but I do want to let you know, I have a few comments to make at the end of this that I wanna just clarify from uh, a few things that I mentioned in my message. Of course, like always, man, there are so many things I would change um, or go back to and re-clarify. That's one of the, <laughs> I guess the, the, the shadow side, the the downside to preaching and not necessarily going off of a manuscript um, is often I don't say things in the exact way that would have been most clear or most helpful. But anyway, I'm just human. I'm just letting you know at the end, I am want to clarify specifically one thing that I mentioned. So without further ado, this is part four of An Intentional Life. I'm just going to jump right in. It's great to connect with you. Um, the last few weeks, uh, Pam and Alex have, have done an amazing job, and, and Brenda, uh, to start this year and just get us set. I know, I feel that way too. Um, I do, inside. <laughs> That's my inside voice. I don't use my inside voice very well, very often, but I'm learning. Um, we... Uh, Brenda and Pam and Alex have helped us establish a trajectory. And if you were with us in December, our, we, the word we feel God has given us for the life of our church this year is rekindle. And behind that is this idea that, that God is, it's our responsibility. God is calling us to draw near to the fire of his presence. And that his presence is more important than anything else. For your life this year. His presence is what you need to face the realities of life. Everything that you hope for this year, all of the dreams that you have, the plans that you have, all of the things that you're a little bit apprehensive about, all of the things that you feel are kind of pressing in and, and making things uncomfortable or pressing on you in, in ways you don't like, it's his presence that you need to navigate all of it. The greatest need you and I have in our life this year is to be near the presence of God. And we're gonna talk today about how scripture plays a role in that. And we've been kind of laying this foundation for this year that um, God calls us to intentionality in our spiritual life. Here's the reality. You and I are being shaped and formed spiritually, culturally, emotionally, relationally, in every way, every facet of the human life, we are being shaped and formed. We don't get a choice as to whether we are. The question is, who is doing the shaping and forming? Or what is doing the shaping and forming? 
if we want to grow in the things of God, if we want to grow in our spiritual walk in life, if we want to grow into the image of Jesus to be formed into his image, we actually need to be intentional. And we need to be intentional in such a way that our intentionality with the presence of God has a more powerful shaping effect than everything coming at us Monday through Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The, the reality of Jesus in your life and in my life has to have a more profound effect than the hours a day you and I spend on our phone. The shaping reality of Jesus, his presence, his nature, and his character have to have a more profound and powerful effect than what they're telling you in university and what they're telling you on the streets of the city and what our culture is telling you life is meant to be like. God has a purpose and a plan for you. He has a calling on your life. But that calling for you and for me will never be realized if we passively sit back and carry an unintentional spiritual life because we will then be very intentionally formed by the people who are spending billions and billions of dollars to affect our lives socially, mentally, relationally, all, all of it. Do you realize there have been and it's not just new to the tech industry, it's been going on for ages, but there are people whose sole responsibility in work is to capture your attention and devote your heart and attention to their product, to their app, to their whatever it is they're selling. They're being very intentional. The question is, are we? Or do we just kind of walk through life and Jesus, I'll give you a little bit here and a little bit there. And I'll, I'll slide you in to my DMs when I got a moment and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll fit you in, in the, when I'm driving, but you know, I don't really have intentional time for you. God is calling us to be formed into the image of Jesus and that takes intentionality. Pam and Alex both talked to us and use the story of Daniel's life. And we're gonna kind of jump off of that. We're not gonna talk about Daniel today specifically. Pam left us with a key question that pervaded Daniel's life as he walked and lived as an exile in Babylon, as a foreigner, which we're called as Christians in the New Testament. We're called exiles and foreigners as we live in this world around us. A key question that pervaded Daniel's life in everything was, does this honor God? That's the big question that Pam left with us. Last week as Alex dove into Daniel even more deeply, he pointed out that the reason that Daniel was able to walk counterculturally counterformed into the image of Jesus in a culture that was railing against everything he grew up to believe in. The reason he could was because he grew up under the revival of Josiah. He grew up in a culture that was 
desperately seeking the face of God. He grew up in a culture that was removing everything and anything that opposed the purposes and plans of God in their lives. He grew up in a culture that was hungry for the presence. He grew up in a culture that valued the presence and sought the presence and prioritized the presence of God. That is how Daniel was able to live to be a very old man and walk against the current in his exile. It was because Daniel grew up in a revival generation and Pastor Alex challenged us last week. If we want to see renewal and revival, not just in our land today, but through our children, through our students, university campuses, college campuses, high school campuses. It's our job to cultivate revival and renewal. It's our job to create an atmosphere and a culture in our community here, in our church community of renewal and revival. It's our job to set the foundation so that they grow up in a culture that is hungry for the presence of God. Not just living a, a legalistic religious life where they know black and white and they just walk around pointing their finger at everything that they don't agree with and condemning those who walk against them. No, no, no. They need to grow up in a culture that is more hungry for the presence of God than anything. I want to read to you a key point from that that will carry us into today. Alex read some of this. I want to read it with you again. 2 Kings 23. If you have a Bible, pull it out. Get your phone out. And uh, you can follow along. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Then the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. This is Josiah. So the temple has been destroyed. They've walked so far from God, they don't even know what God has said to them in the past. They don't know the history of how God has worked in their lives. They have no idea what God has done. The temple's destroyed. They filled it with all kinds of other idols, all kinds of other altars. They're, they're uh, living in a synchronistic society. They're worshiping many, many gods. And as they're clearing out the temple, as they're renewing their commitment to God, they discover the scriptures. Literally, they literally find the scrolls of the scriptures and they pull them out and they start reading them. These scriptures become a key component of the renewal and revival that they experience. The king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. There the king read to them the entire book of the covenant. You think our service is long. He read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. Notice how they're engaging with scripture in a couple of ways here. They're not just reading it as a point of information, as a point of interest. They're not just kind of holding it at arm's length and saying, well, that's interesting. I'm, you know, let's, let's kind of exegete that, what Moses said there. No, they're reading it 
And then they begin to respond in activity by living it, by responding through their actions. The king takes his place of authority. They renew their covenant. Just what we did today, what you did, God, I invite you to be Lord of my life again. I submit my life to you again. I renew my commitment to you again. That's a daily thing. That's not a once in your life thing. That's like an everyday thing. Father, I renew my heart toward you today again. I renew my intention to follow you and to live for you, to be directed by you and led by you. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart and soul. The heart was, in Hebrew culture and in scriptural culture, the heart is the command center of the human life. The heart is what directs everything else. If scripture and God's presence doesn't penetrate to the heart, it'll always be out there. It'll always be an object for you to control, an object for you to try and master, an object for you and I to use for our selfish purposes, an object for us to wield with fear, an object for us to wield with hurt and all kinds of other things. But if scripture and God's presence penetrates to the heart level, then it begins to direct our lives because our heart is the command center of our whole being. What does Jesus say? It's out of the overflow of the heart that you even speak. Your heart directs your life. What does your heart turn toward even today? What has captured the attention of your heart? In this way, he confirmed all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll. They actually began to live it out again. And the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So Josiah goes through the whole land of Israel, like Alex mentioned, and he tears down those places of idolatry that have competed for and captured the hearts of the people. They tear them all down. It takes years to do it. But he tears down every place that's competing for the place of God in the heart of the people. Scripture plays a key role in directing their lives. Here's part of how they walked this out. 2 Kings 23, later on, Josiah got rid of the mediums and psychics, the household gods, the idols, and every other kind of detestable practice, both in Jerusalem and throughout the land of Judah. Why? He did it in obedience to the laws written in the scroll that Hilkiah the priest had found in the Lord's temple. Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and soul and strength. Where does that sound familiar from? Obeying all the laws of Moses. And there never has been a king since him. You know, one of the things we have to get settled and straight and be intentional with, even in our Western evangelical church, in theology and doctrine, in intellect, we say we worship only God, but in reality, we live quite syncretistically. Our heart is directed by many other loves. See, Jesus doesn't want to just be an addition to your bookshelf. 
or in addition to the altar that you have set up to another God or to, you know, multiple other gods. Jesus isn't just something to add in to what you're already doing. The call of the kingdom, the call of scripture, the call that Josiah answered was to turn to God with your whole heart and remove everything else that competes with his presence in your life. What are you willing, what am I willing to walk away from in your life? Are you willing to walk away from unhealthy relationships to TikTok? I can, I can pretty much bet that you're spending more time on social media than you are in God's word. And I don't say that as an indictment, just the reality, let's be honest. That's a struggle for everyone. What are you willing to do? What kind of high places are you and I willing to tear down in order to make room for the presence of God in our life? You have to be intentional. I have to be intentional. It doesn't happen just by accident. You and I don't grow spiritually just by accident. As we always say around here, and we'll keep saying it, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. There's nothing in the scripture that prohibits effort in walking out the realities of the kingdom. It takes great effort and intentionality. And Josiah led the Israelites into that and scripture was a key component. And I want you to just notice that he not only tore down what needed to go, but he brought in what needed to replace those things. He brought in the scriptures again. He brought in the Passover feast again. He replaced what was unholy and unproductive with what is holy and what is productive in growth in the kingdom. So it's not just about removing stuff from your life and, and having this kind of ascetic lifestyle like some of the early desert fathers who, who retreated out into the desert for good intentions, but then decided to live standing on a pole for the rest of their life apart from society. That's not what the scripture calls us to. It calls us to be filled and renewed with God's presence, not just to kind of in a, in a religious way to cut out stuff we think that God is upset with. We need to remove those things that compete for the presence of God, but we need to actually invite and welcome and cultivate a life where we're welcoming in the presence of God, where we're filling ourselves with his word and where we're walking in direct relationship to him, following his direction. There's a metaphor in scripture for this. And I'll tell you, this is the best metaphor for me personally. When I say it, you'll know exactly. If you've been here for more than a week, this fits my life in like a glove. Here's the metaphor of how scripture instructs us to relate to scripture. Here's the metaphor. Eat this book. Scripture tells us to eat scripture. If you know me, I love eating. 
I love food. I have, it's, it, it delves into dysfunctional stuff sometimes, and Rochelle is quick to remind me of that when it's 10 o'clock and I'm eating Cheetos on the couch. But I, I love food. I, I do. I, some people don't get any joy out of it. I, I love spending 12 hours smoking a brisket and then carefully cutting it and savoring every last bite of it. I love food. When, when I'm in Europe, I Google places to go and get pastries because it's way better over there. Like I made one of our teams one time that I was with, a group of us traveling together, I made us drive 45 minutes out of the way to the heart of Paris so I could go to a particular pastry place. I bought like, I don't even know how much, way more money than I should have, worth of pastry. They're waiting for me for like 20 minutes while I'm picking things out. I'm trying to speak French, but it wasn't going very well. There's a big, long lineup behind me. Everybody was annoyed, but I'm picking out everything. What, how often do you get to eat pastry in France? That's like a, that's a priority, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. I know we're there for spiritual reasons, but come on. Um, so I get into the van and I have all of these bags of pastries and I'm like, guys, here, like I, I rip them open. I'm like, eat. And they're like, ah, we don't want any. I said, what? What are you talking about? First of all, we just drove like an hour out of the way for this. Second of all, are you literally not going to eat anything? No, we're not really hungry. I ate everything. I literally, I ate it all. I did. I was traveling in London one time with some friends doing some ministry stuff. And in the same kind of scenario, I saw we were downtown and I saw this amazing a bakery and pastry place. I went and bought a whole big bag and I, as we're walking, like we're walking. So we're expending calories and everybody should be getting hungry. And so I just, I said, guys, here, help yourself. Nah, we're not really hungry. I don't really want that stuff. And so I just ate it all. I just kept walking through London, just eating everything that I could. I, for me, there's great joy in that. And actually, Scripture says that we should have great joy in how we engage with it. That not only do we sit far off and kind of observe it from a scientific, academic point of view, but that we ingest it into our life. And in the process of ingesting it, we chew it and we savor it. We engage with it. We bring it into the very core of our whole being. That's how Scripture says we're to relate to it. Revelation 10 this is the prophet John, this vision. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun and his feet were like pillars of fire. In his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with us, sorry, he stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Just, just imagine the immensity of this spiritual being straddling earth and sea with this scroll in his hand. In his hand was a small scroll that he had opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered, when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret 
what the seven thunders said. This powerful angel is reading and preaching from this scroll. He's declaring what is found on this scroll. And it is so powerful that the heavens are shaking. It's coming across with thunderous power. And John begins to write like he thinks, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Then the angel instructs him, don't write it, but eat it. I was thinking about this. I think part of this cuts to the heart of our human nature is to stand at a distance from Scripture, to stand at a distance from God's Word. And we can dictate, we can take notes, we can study it, we can observe it, we can repeat it, we can do all of these things. But this angel says to John, I don't want you just to record what you're hearing. I don't want you just to kind of regurgitate this secondhand word. I want you to eat the very word that I'm speaking. I don't want you to try and live off of what I'm bringing to the table. Do you know, like, you can't live spiritually and sustain your life off of my preaching, that's for sure. And you can't do it off of way better preachers than me either. Your spiritual life will never grow if all you do is ingest and write down and take notes of what I say. The only way you grow is if you eat the book, you ingest it, you chew it, you savor it, you hold it in you, you bring it into your life in a very real way. That's the only way you grow in your spiritual life, not by doing what I say but by eating the book for yourself. So scripture tells us that we need to have a much more intimate relationship with it. Josiah not only read the scripture, but he allowed it to shape him and direct how Israel lived. Jesus is our model for life. We keep saying that around here. He's our model for life. Jesus is the model for how we are to be fully human. Fully human on this earth and connected to the heart of God, walking out the purposes of God on the earth. Jesus is our model for how to live. And Jesus himself was the kind of man who ate the book, who didn't just rely on the secondhand information passed down to him from his rabbis and the religious leaders and scholars. He's a man who ingested it for himself. He is fully man, fully God. I don't know how that works. That's a mystery that I'm okay to not understand. Fully God, fully man. But I wanna leave this thought with you because often we say, well, it's Jesus. Like he is the word that became flesh, right? We quote John 1. And, and so he, like, he had an unfair advantage over me. And in some ways, maybe he did, but I, as we've talked about before, my conviction from 
Philippians 2 is that when Jesus laid aside, he humbled himself and laid aside his rights and privileges as God. What he was doing was saying, I will humble myself and I will lower myself and take on every limitation that every other normal man or woman faces. Every limitation in learning about you, God, every limitation in connecting with you in prayer, every limitation in hearing your voice, all of them, I will take them on willfully and I will show humanity how to be fully human, how to hear the voice of God and have a life that's fully directed by them. I'll show them that it's possible And even now in heavenly places, when Jesus ascended, he ascended as a man. He didn't revert back to his pre-incarnate state. Jesus is a man in heavenly places, forever humbling himself and lowering himself and accepting every human limitation and showing us how to eat this book and live this life according to the heart of God. Luke 2.52 talking about the birth story of Jesus, says this, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Jesus had to grow in his understanding of this book that we read. He had to grow. He didn't just have it automatically. He had to grow. He had to cultivate. He had to eat the book in his own life. And like us, He was subjected to powerful forces that were trying to counterform him, that were working against the purposes of God in his life. Jesus was subjected to those just like we are. You could write this down if you're a note taker. This is the basic idea here. Not only did God the Father have a vision for Jesus' life, that he had to learn how to walk in without sin, and he's the only one that's ever done it without sin. But not only did the father have a vision for his life, the devil had a vision for his life. And the culture around Jesus had a vision for his life. And those two forces in his life, we have the flesh and our sinfulness, and Jesus didn't have it in that same way. He was without sin, but those two forces were powerfully working to reform and to reshape Jesus' life into their image, not into the image of the Father. And we have these same forces at work in our life. You and I are being formed. The question is, who or what is doing the forming? And are you willing to be intentional about being formed into the image of Jesus? I love this quote from John Tyson, he's a pastor in New York City. He says this, our habits, preferences, values, fears, longings, and desires have been shaped by a complex matrix of development, family dynamics and expectations, cultural scripts and choice architecture, traumatic experiences, exposure to sin, and giving in to temptation. Our formation has been around pursuing Project Self with a sinful system pushing us into its mold. What we think, what we want, what we fear, and what we pursue are patterned after 
the ideas, images, imagination, and practices of the world. We haven't just been formed by the world, we've been deformed. You see, you were made in the image of God. You were made for a purpose. You have a calling on your life and everything coming at you, everything coming at me from the flesh, your own desires from the world around you and from the kingdom of darkness has been deforming the image of God in you. It's been working to deform the purposes and plans of God for your life. He goes on to say, secularism has shaped your world to believe God is distant and irrelevant. Porn has shaped your view of sexuality to be selfish and your view of women as commodities for male pleasure. The same would be true of women who engage with that. Violence has shaped your view of anger, revenge, and justice. Consumerism has shaped you to believe your preferences must be met and the goal of life is fulfillment and ease. Bad religion has shaped your view of faith, God, and religious performance. A therapeutic culture has shaped your view of victimhood, agency, and possibility. We are being deformed with heavy forces every day, every moment you stare at the screen that you pull out of your pocket, you are being deformed from the image of God. You are being systematically reshaped into the image of whoever it is wants your attention. Every time you and I engage in series on Netflix and all of that stuff, we are being deformed in some way. Our Education system is deforming our culture in a systematic way. We're being deformed from the plans and the purpose and the image of God that he made us for. And the question you and I have to answer is, are we going to be intentional, intentional about counteracting that? I want you to write this down. Pull your phone out, write this down. This is also from John. I find this really helpful. Here's the process, and this might help to kind of give you food for thought or some direction. Here's the process. Formation, you're made in the image of God. You're born with value and dignity and purpose and a calling on your life. Ephesians, Paul says, even before he made the earth, God formed you and made you. So step one, formation. You're born in the image of God. You're created. We're born in sin, but we're born with a purpose and a calling that God wants to shape. Step two, deformation. And we're deformed by our own flesh, our desires, by the culture, the zeitgeist of the world around us, and by the devil, the kingdom of darkness. Those three forces, you can look in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 to read about those. Those three forces are very intentional with deforming your life. So it becomes a broken, tattered, deformed kind of picture of humanity. Step three, counterformation. We, we did a whole series on that last year this time. Here's what counterformation is. It is spirit-led 
counterforming now and introducing now the purposes and plans of God, the word of God, the truth of God, the realities of God, introducing that into our life. We begin to eat the book. We begin to abide in the presence of Jesus. We begin to listen to the Holy Spirit, to his counsel. We begin to set our course for the image of Jesus to be formed into his image. And the Holy Spirit begins to now counterform what has been deformed. Step four, transformation. This is where as we begin to be counterformed, our heart begins to change. God begins to reshape us from the inside out. He begins to form new desires in us. We, we desire the things that God values and loves for us, the things that he's put around us to help us thrive and to make us whole. We begin to be transformed from the inside out. And the fourth or the last one, fifth, is conformation. And this is probably one of the hardest ones because that's where we begin to die to self and we begin to see that the road to resurrection always leads through the cross and Jesus did not die on the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to die he died so that we could follow him in dying to self we can't achieve salvation for anyone Jesus did that on the cross on his own none of us can repeat that but Jesus invites us to a life defined by death to the self-life. That's confirmation. And this is the process. As a church, as a church, as we've looked at scripture over the last number of years and spent time uh, eating it, <laughs> and immersing ourselves in the Gospels, we've recognized there are three sort of distinct priorities of Jesus's life that worked to counter form, to form him into the image of God and to resist the deformation of the world around him. These are three priorities Jesus had and these are the anchor points of our church life. These are the ways that we believe God is calling us as our church to step into growth and discipleship and formation spiritually. Number one, scripture. Jesus brought his life under scripture and his life was shaped by it. We cannot be formed into the image of Jesus. We cannot counteract the deforming of the world, the flesh and the devil if we are not bringing our lives under scripture. We don't stand in authority over it. We don't tell scripture what it means. We don't pick and choose what we like and what we don't like. We don't let culture tell scripture what it means, whatever the waves of popular opinion are. Scripture must be the formational force of our life. We're called to eat it, to live it, and allow it to do its work in us. Number two, spiritual practices. Jesus prioritized regular rhythms of spiritual practice. Prayer, scripture reading, fasting, were three big ones for Jesus. Servanthood, there's other things we could talk about and we, we will over the course of, from now until he comes back probably, but these are the things that Jesus regularly engaged in. These were the things that brought the kingdom of God to bear. Spiritual practices are not about earning God's approval or becoming better Christians. 
Spiritual practices exist to put us in a place where we now can access the very throne room we've been invited into, where we access the presence of God and allow his presence to do its work in our life. It's us saying, I'm here, Lord. My time is yours. You're more valuable to me than whatever I've got going on in my schedule right now. I'm here. Would you now begin to work in my life? They're not orders of merit or a way for us to be pious or more religious or, or more devout. They're simply us saying I'm available and I'm going to show my availability through the activity of my life, not just my words. And three, Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit's gifting and power. We'll talk more about this this spring. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit's gifting and power. Jesus was dependent on that. These were how Jesus was intentional with his life, how he was intentionally shaped, how he grew in wisdom and stature. The first part of our mandate as a church is to cultivate a deep hunger and longing for Jesus. That's the very most essential part of our church culture, that what God has called us to as a community together is to cultivate a deep hunger and longing for the presence of Jesus. And one of the most important ways we do that is by interacting with Scripture, by eating the book, by saturating our lives with it. So we, like Jesus, are committed to coming under Scripture, engaging with it, being shaped by it, I want to just leave you as we kind of get close to the end here. I want to leave you with some thoughts and maybe I'll, we'll come back into this and I'll, I'm only like a third of the way through my notes. So I got to make some kind of choice here. <laughs> um, I see some eyes like, what? All right. Anyway, that's okay. We're all going to be okay. It'll all be okay. Um, how did Jesus come under scripture? How was he formed by it? I want to propose to you three things related to Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. He was shaped by submitting to scripture as his authority over his own flesh, over the desires that he just had for his own life, over his maybe plan or vision for his life. He was shaped by submitting to it as his authority over his own self. Number two, he was shaped by submitting to it as his authority over the devil, over the spiritual principalities and realities of the earth that were looking to form him in their own image. And number three, he was shaped by it, by submitting to it as his authority over culture and the world around him. Those are the three kind of dominant ways that Jesus was shaped by scripture. These were the ways that he ate the book. So really quickly, turn with me to Luke 4. We're going to blast through this. The temptation of Jesus. Number one, he submitted to Scripture his authority over his flesh. When Satan comes to tempt him, Luke 4, 1 to 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing at that time and became hungry. His flesh was hungry. His body was hungry. 
He had needs that were crying out for him to give attention to. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. Here's how Jesus used scripture. No, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Jesus gave scripture authority over his own body, over himself, over his own flesh. There's other examples. We won't read them. Matthew 19, three to six. Pharisees trying to make a provision for divorce because it would just be easier. And Jesus is like, mm, you don't understand the scriptures or the heart of God in this stuff. You don't just make the rules up as you go. You don't just form your own basis of morality. You don't just take the, the path that's easiest where the water naturally flows. No, you bring your life under scripture. They're trying to find a religious legal loophole for divorce so that they can kind of make things easier on themselves. And he says, that was never the heart of God. He gave it as a provision because he knew the hardness of the hearts of man, but that was never the heart of God. Jesus calls them back to a right understanding, one that's not shaped by their flesh and their desire to make life easier for themselves. Matthew 26, in the garden of Gethsemane, right? Judas comes. Peter defends him, pulls out his sword, cuts off the servant's ear. And Jesus said, those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? My life is not my own. This is the witness of the whole New Testament. Your body is not yours. Culture says it's yours. But if, and you don't have to, but if you want to bring your life under Scripture, Scripture says your body's not your own. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit who is from God. He's bought you with a price. You don't own your body. You're not the author of it. You're not the provider for it. You're not the perfecter of it. Your life is not your own. Jesus confronts the desire to save his life to see the glory of God come and to divert the plans of God, to gratify his flesh. He brings his life under scripture. And he says, my, my desire, my will is not mine. Number two, he submitted to scripture as his authority over the devil. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. I'll give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said because they're mine to give to anyone I want. I'll give it to you. If what? If you worship me, if you give me your allegiance, I'll give it to you. What does Jesus say? He goes back to scripture. The scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Your life and my life, every day, we have intrusion into our life, vying for our allegiance vying for who would be Lord of our heart and our desires. And Jesus again submits his life to scripture in resisting the devil, in resisting the spiritual forces at work. Number three, he submitted it to his scripture as his authority over the culture. 
The devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point in the temple, and said, if you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil finished tempting him, he left him. What, what is the significance of that? At least in part, this is my best understanding of this. If Jesus would have went to the temple and thrown himself off like was being suggested, he would have created this spectacle of awe among the religious leaders, among the culture around him. He would have created this like, wow, look at him. Look at his power, look at his gifting, look at his anointing. God would send his angels to protect him. This guy is walking with God. He would have created and attracted attention to himself. He would have endeared himself to the religious and secular culture around him through his own means. The devil's tempting him. Jesus, you should, you should have more influence. You should be an influencer, Jesus. Jesus, how are you going to generate more followers on TikTok and Instagram? Jesus, you need more influence. You need to attract more people to your gifting and your talent. And our church has bought this lock, stock, and barrel. We are a culture, I'm sorry, we're a culture who chases celebrity worship leaders and pastors. We give more of our allegiance as evidenced in how many messages and podcasts you listen to every week, more of our allegiance to celebrity pastors and worship leaders than we do to eating this word. And Jesus didn't take the bait. He said, no, I'm not gonna become a spectacle of awe that attracts attention to myself. If God is gonna give me attention, he's gonna give it, but I'm not gonna be the one who creates a culture around me that demands and craves the gifting that I bring, the supernatural power that I carry, the authority I carry. This is how Jesus confronted the flesh, the world, and the devil. And we're called to eat this scripture and have it have the same formational power in our life. Okay, running through this, how can we eat it? You can't do it with a fork and knife. I wish you could. Number one, you read it. This is a functional approach to scripture. You read it, you've gotta read it. You can listen to it, like, you know, on your Bible app or whatever, but you need to read it. This is informational and functional. I would say this is the bottom, like the, the most basic way to engage with it, but not the most complete way. Number two, you need to read it, but you also need to hear it. You need to spend time listening to the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that authored this. Jesus said he would come to remind you of everything I've taught. He's your counselor. He's the one who corrects you. He's the one who speaks truth. The Holy Spirit, Paul even said to Timothy, if you don't understand, I think it was in Corinthians, if you don't understand what I'm saying, I trust the Holy Spirit to tell you meaning I'm not gonna run around and correct everybody's doctrine and theology. 
I'm not going to run around spending my time as a heresy witch hunter with every sort of jot and tittle that I don't agree with online. I, I, I have very little patience for people who go online and they invest their whole life in trying to call out every small little thing that everybody else does. Paul says, if you want to know what it says, ask the Holy Spirit. He's the one who teaches and counsels. Not your best preacher, not me. The, our problem is, in our culture, again, we're more formed by the words of our favorite pastor than we are of the Holy Spirit enlightening and bringing revelation to the book itself. You need to hear it, which means that you need to quiet yourself and sit with it. You need to ask him. I ask this, I, I don't think I rarely or would, you know, in, as a rule, would never open the scriptures and just start reading. I, I'm conditioned to open them and say, Holy Spirit, I don't know how to read this, but you wrote this. Would you speak to me? Would you make this real? Would you counsel me? Bring this into my life. Bring revelation and truth and insight. We need to read it and we need to hear it. And number three, we need to live it. We need to walk in obedience to what it actually says. So here are John Wesley's guidelines just as we land the plane here. Not that he's the be and the end, the end all, but I found these practical. I'm not as good with practical. So it appears John Wesley was better with that. So number one, set apart, and these are literally from him, set apart a little time every morning and evening. What's he saying? You need to have regular, consistent engagement with Scripture, not haphazard popcorn style. You need to have regular engagement with it. What is the second point here? Set aside time. You need to prioritize it. Remove the distractions. I would encourage you, in your own personal study, do not use your phone. Because your phone is conditioned to attract your attention. And there'll be a, a hundred dings and notifications and you'll be tempted like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I'm jiving with this paragraph. Why don't I just check you know, what's happening on Instagram or the Sportsnet app or whatever. Don't use your phone. Use a real book. Sit in quietness. No outward distractions, no inward distractions, and spend a little bit of time just with Jesus. Set apart a bit of time. You need daily, regular, consistent feeding. Number two, read from both the Old and New Testament. This is huge. I'm not saying you have to read the Bible in a Year app, um, you know, or a plan. We are, and we can help you with that but you have to read the things you don't naturally gravitate to. Given our own propensity, if we have no plan with scripture, we'll just open it up and read what we like. Read what we connect with. Read the same thing we've read a thousand times. When's the last time you opened Leviticus? Huh, yeah, you know. You probably can't even remember, right? The whole scripture... The whole scripture was authored by God as a story to involve you and engage you. Every part of it points to Jesus and every part of it has nourishment for your body and your life. Don't just read the parts you like. Read a little bit of the old and new in there. Uh, by the way, the old is not lower than the new in authority. Just 
throwing that out there. In zero way is the Old Testament diminished in its authority over your life than the New Testament. Both of them are equally authoritative. Number three, read small amounts. Go for depth over breadth. It's way more productive to read a paragraph and sit with it and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to work in your life than it is to read six chapters and not remember what you read at all. So if time is an issue, if you struggle to read, some, some of you love reading and you can read like, you know, you can read through the whole Bible in a month. Amazing. But I would say as a rule, go for depth over breadth. I want to leave you with this. You can stand together. I know you want to. <laughs> I want to leave you with this thought. Don't write this off before I get to the second sentence. You might think I'm a heretic at the first sentence, but wait till we get the second sentence, okay? Here's what I want to leave with you. We don't read the Bible to know the Bible. We read the Bible to encounter the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't read the Bible just to know it. We read the Bible to encounter God. We read the Bible to come into his presence and have our lives shaped and permeated by his nature and his character, his goodness and his life. Our goal is not to, you know, have the Bible read as a, as a badge that we wear. Our goal is to meet with the living God and scripture is a fundamental way that we are shaped by God. It's what Jesus used and it's what he's inviting us to use. A couple things as we go. In two weeks, we're starting the book of James, a study. We're doing a survey through that, about a 10-weeker or something like that. We have scripture journals in the lobby that you can buy. So just like we did in the summer with Revelation, we have these scripture journals. Here's what we want you to do. We're gonna be reading the whole book out loud in the services uh, through the course of that series. I want you, if you can, to purchase one of those scripture journals and bring it every week. There's room to write notes in there. Uh, there's room to follow along. If you can't afford that, they're $10. If you can't afford that, come and talk to us. We'll gladly, gladly help you with that. That's one way you can begin to eat this book together with us. Also, like I mentioned, there's other Bible reading plans. Um, a bunch of people here are doing Nikki Gumbel's Year in, Year in the Bible. There's a whole app for that. Um, there's another plan that I'm using uh, with Randy Friesen, who is kind of a spiritual father here, and that's uh, called Listening to the Word, which is on the Bible, the YouVersion app. If you want to know more about those, you can connect with us. But I want to encourage you. God wants to meet with you. He wants to transform your life. He wants to reveal himself to you. Would you be willing to give him a little bit of your attention so that you can eat this book and see your life changed by it? Let's pray. Father, we submit ourselves to you. And we just invite you, Jesus, to teach us how to be formed into your image through scripture the way that you were. We bring ourselves under your authority.
Holy Spirit, we bring ourselves under your leadership. And I just ask for those who are here today that have trouble with Scripture, that find it to be the most boring book on the face of the earth and don't really want to engage with it, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would spark some life there, that you would call them into a living relationship with you, that you would speak to them through Scripture. Father, we give ourselves to you to be shaped and formed into the image of Jesus as we come under Scripture in our life, as we eat this book, bring it into our life, and begin to walk it and live it out. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, like I mentioned, I wanted to clarify a few things. I should probably clarify many things or say things a little bit different in many instances. But the one um, that I've been thinking about that I is sort of most glaring to me is I mentioned, I don't know when, midway through, near the end, I'm not sure, of this message. Um, I, I just made a comment about um, the formational influence of um, the flesh in Jesus's life. And so as we were walking through the temptation of Jesus and viewing it through the lens of him being um, tempted to allow the world, his flesh and the devil to have a greater authority in his life than scripture, a greater shaping influence than scripture. I made a comment, something to the effect that because Jesus was without sin, that the, you know, the flesh may not have played the same role. And actually, as I thought about that after, that's actually not scriptural. In James 4.15, the writer, or not James, Hebrews 4.15, the writer of Hebrews actually would contradict what I alluded to in my own message and say that, um, and I know this, I remember this, I just didn't, again, say this well in the message, that Jesus faced every kind of temptation that we do, meaning uh, he faced the full Power, the draw of his own flesh to uh, have greater authority in his life than scripture, than his father's voice and walking in obedience and faithfulness to the father. And so I just wanted to, to just kind of fix that up and clarify that, that actually that's a necessary result of Jesus being fully human. And we're not always comfortable with that part of, of our theology with Jesus, our understanding of Jesus. But um, so when it comes to the shaping influence of the world, the flesh and the devil, Jesus would have experienced the full power of all three of those to try and deform him uh, from the image uh, of his father from the uh, authority of scripture over his life, uh, all of those things. The key with Jesus is that he did not sin. He did not give in to the flesh. He did not allow the flesh to rule his life and the flesh to become the object of his desire. So um, I just wanted to clarify that for us. The reason that Jesus is our model and the reason that we can relate to him, and I think that he wants us to relate to him with, with reverence, he's fully God, right? We can't, we, we have to hold these intention. He's fully God, but, but he is our model. He was fully human, fully, fully, fully human. You and I 
can look to him as one who has experienced everything we are, everything we're experiencing, every uh, difficulty, pain, hurt, temptation, you know, the temptation for his heart to be drawn to a hundred other things. Um, we can look to him as one who experienced all of that. He can identify with us. He's compassionate toward us with those things. He understands the, the struggle of trying to connect with God um, as a human. He understands that. And uh, so we can look to him for that. He is our model, our example, and he faced uh, all of the stuff that we face today. So I hope that that encourages you today, maybe clarifies that one point um, that I made live in uh, preaching. This is Tuesday, it's a few days after now. So I hope you have an amazing week and we'll see you next week for the last part of our series called An Intentional Life.